Yeah. So since you brought it up, let's talk about it. So I, um, I had tweeted out and retweeted on the Limelight Alpha account yesterday. Uh, I, learned, I learned kind of an interesting lesson. So I've, I've owned uh, this ETF. Todd, if you could actually pull up the chart for MJ, that would be awesome. Absolutely. So this is a, this is a, a cannabis ETF that I've owned for a little over a year. I actually thought it was longer than a year, but Fidelity tells me I bought it in 2020. So, okay. Uh, and I, I owned not a ton uh, and I had bought it at, gee, I don't know, 16, 15 a share. Yeah, and, and it, looks like, it looks like that probably would have been either early last year, mid last year or late last year, you were kind yeah. of into those areas. Yep, yeah, so I, I bought it at around 15 or 16 and it had, it had been a laggard in my portfolio for a long time. And then obviously with the election in November and then uh, more importantly, the Democratic Senate majority uh, from that, that special election in Georgia was in January. As you can see, it's gone to the moon since then. Yeah, what was it? The first week of January was the election yep. results were issued. You can see where the stock is here at 17. And it's already moved up 70% from where it was last fall. And you probably had a lot of people saying, well, the news is out, it's all done. You and I actually did a show where we talked about the winners and losers. We did. Georgia. So listeners, go back and you can listen to that show where we talk about marijuana as having some pretty big tailwinds now. Uh, based upon that decision. So uh, you've now gone from 17, uh, just interrupting you shortly there, Joe, going from 17 up to 31. So right. if you, thought you missed it. <laughs> you hadn't missed it. So, so here, that day. here was the lesson that I learned yesterday morning. I was looking at the chart before the market opened. It was sitting at about 26, 26 and a half. Um, and I had looked at the way it had moved in the previous couple of days. And a lot of times what you'll see is, especially with a really volatile stock or an ETF, side note, I think it's remarkable that this ETF with 30 or 40 different holdings has spiked up as much as it has in the past few weeks. Anyway, I looked at it, it was at 26 or 26.50. I've, so at that point I was up at least 50%. And it's, it was at its all-time high. And I've been really hesitant to buy stuff at, at all-time highs. It, it just it doesn't, doesn't quite seem right to me. You know, what if there's no, there's no proof that it can maintain that price? So I decided to uh, kind of counter my, my usual logic. And I expanded my position yesterday morning at market open got in at about 27 and ended the day up eight and a half percent on that, on that investment, aside from my initial position. Now, the next day, it's up another, it's fluctuating right now between eight and eight and a half percent. So now I'm up between 16 and 17% on that initial investment. So yeah, patting myself on the back a little bit. Uh, but the reason why I bring it up is not to brag, but to really put forth a, a, a great lesson that I just learned about buying. And so I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of expand this into a general sort of discussion about buy strategy, because I know there are folks out there like me who see whatever, whatever stock it might be, whether it's one of these 
cannabis stocks or honestly anything. It could, this applies to anything. This applies to the spy. This applies to gold. This applies, heck, this applies to Bitcoin. So I think a lot of people out there are hesitant to buy when there's no, when there's no track record of support at an all-time high. So how do you suggest, Todd, that people kind of overcome that hurdle? Yeah, this is the natural progression in development as an investor, right, Joe? I mean, this is the natural progression. I mean, this is typically speaking in the, in the life cycle of an investor, you start out thinking, oh, I've got to buy things cheap, right? I got to buy things on sale. And that's the best way for me to make some money is to buy things on sale, buy things that are cheap, right? Especially so when you're young and you're working off of very little capital. Right. So you think to yourself, okay, I'm either going to buy these are mistakes that, that we learn and we evolve out of, but you're, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to buy a cheap stock as in price. Oh, I'm going to buy penny stocks, right? Or you say to yourself, I'm going to buy a cheap stock in PE ratio. So you say, oh, the price divided by the earnings, look, it's only trading at three times earnings. The problem with that is it fails to understand that P ratios are, uh, there's two different components of that, the price of the earnings, right? And oftentimes the price leads the earnings, right? People ferret out that a company's in trouble and start moving away from that company, which makes the P ratio fall because it's based on trailing earnings. That's why in our research model, we always look at forward earnings projections, right? But even those are slow to drop. So then the bad news starts to trickle through into the business. The fundamentals start to deteriorate. And guess what happens to that P ratio? It starts to climb. Yep. It doesn't climb, but the P ratio starts to climb because there's less earnings, right? So these are all part of these things that we learn. Now, you, you're, what you embraced with that purchase of, of, of um, MJ here is you embrace that kind of William O'Neill study and Stan Weinstein, some of these other really famous in investors who've gone back and actually crunched the data to find out, no, not what I think or anecdotally may give me the best return, but what does the data tell me? And invariably, the data told them that when you're much better focusing on stocks that are breaking out to new highs, then you are trying to buy lows or pick lows or bottom fish or whatever. It makes you, the, the win rate is substantially better. Now you have to balance, and this is the next part of that evolution, you have to balance not only the buying of new highs, but knowing when to buy those new highs, right? And also putting risk controls in place so that, because 50% of breakouts to new highs fail. I think that's important to remember. Yep. The 50% that work, that make you a boatload of money. So the key here is to eliminate the ones that don't work relatively quickly, right? And let those ones that do work mature to some point. And from O'Neill's studies, the mature point was 20% from the breakout. So if it moved 20 to 25% above the breakout that we call the pivot level, then that would be a point that, where you could start to rein in rest. I think Stan Weinstein, in his book, he was talking about uh, when you get a vertical move, like we're seeing now, I left this chart up because I wanted to show this. So if you're on YouTube, you're seeing this. If you're not on YouTube and you're listening to Anchor, you can view the charts by going to our page, Limelight Alpha page on YouTube. When you get verticals like this, especially, uh, who was it? Marty Schwartz talked about, I think, three moves up and then you start to get nervous of a pullback. Um, so you don't want to be buying on that third day uh, of that rally. So maybe you're not buying it today. Maybe today you're just sitting on your hands and you're saying, okay, I'm going to let's see if it back and fills a little bit. You've got some gaps to fill down to the low 20s. Who knows? It may not go down that far. Um, but if you get a down 5% day, 
Uh, that's typically what I use, Joe, is I say, okay, if there's a stock that screens high in our research, that's had kind of this big spike move up and I'm not involved in it, but I want to get involved in it. I add to my watch list and when I see it down 5%, all things else considered equal, right? Depending on the market. If we're in a market uptrend, it would down 5% on a stock that's been running. That's just simply profit taking. Yes. Profit taking. So I'm willing to buy other people's profit taking in a good stock, right? So you're saying to yourself, I want to book some of this because I've made a lot of money fast, which is totally fine if that's what you choose to do, right? I'd be looking at it as not owning it and saying, if Joe's booking it, fine, I'll take advantage of that dip because he's booking it to buy it and see if I can make the next run up. So I wouldn't be buying today because of the third spike up uh, and, and how vertical this chart is. Another stock that I actually own, I'm up 1,700% uh, now, Joe, in this. 1,700 in, in a year. Oh in my gosh. I, March, I think I bought it in uh, yeah, early 2020 at 10. Fulgent Genetics, it's a genomics play that expanded the revenue significantly last year because they pivoted to be able to do COVID testing for a lot of municipalities and universities and, and, and the like. And as a result, the earnings go through the shot through the moon, the revenue shot up 883% year over wow. year last quarter, which is a stupid numbers, right? And people now, because this is a very thinly traded, it only trades, uh, let's see, I think the float is like yeah, 13 million share float, very small compared to something like, say, you know, NVIDIA, which has 588 million shares floating. So there's not a lot yep. of liquidity out there. So you look at Fulgin and you say, wow. So again, would I be a buyer here? No, I would wait. So you look at this big move, one, two, three, four spikes up, right? And then pulled back almost the entire move, flagged out a little bit, pennant, and then boom, back out again. So you kind of look at it and you say, okay, well, I don't need to buy the spike. I can wait and, and we'll show some other examples. I'll show some other examples because you, know, you wanted to see some ideas of, okay, how do you, how do you, you know, buy entry? So this is a comp stock that's been very high scoring in our research for a while, right? And again, if you're on um, listening, I'll do my best on the podcast, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple or one of these other great platforms, I'll do my best to try and walk you through it. But we're looking at the chart of digital turbine, APPS. So Apple, Peter, Peter, Sam. And this is a company that kind of, it allows for the monetization of apps um, on smartphones. And they're also getting into a little bit of the over the top um, advertising as well. So you talk about the 5G upgrade cycle, people tossing out their phones, getting new phones in. That's a great opportunity for digital turbine service to be able to help um, for the discoverability of new apps and stuff and capture uh, uh, revenue from those, those developers. Um, by enabling this. And you can see that the stock obviously has, has run up substantially from $14 a share last summer to $88 uh, where we sit today. One of the things that I will always look at, and you'll notice on my chart, right? If you're looking at my chart, there's three trend lines I have under here, Joe. I have a 200-day, I have a 50-day, which is the red line, and I have the 21-day, which is the green line. So what I typically do in something like this is say, and I happened to loan this stock, uh, long this stop, uh, stock. I didn't look to see when I bought it, but I want to make sure everybody knows that I am talking my own book here. I do own this stock. Um, so what I would be looking at here isn't necessarily to buy it on the breakout um, above a huge number, but to see if it pulls back to one of these key levels. Oftentimes, you'll find that stocks will find support. Buyers will emerge and support the stock once it retreats to one of these levels. 
So story first, why do I like digital turbine? Because of the 5G upgrade cycle, right? That's my story first. So that's my thesis, right? The reason I'm wanna own this company is because of that upgrade cycle, right? So then I'm using these technical levels to try and figure out my entry points and my exit points, right? So what I'd be looking at here is if I'm interested in the stock, I'm looking to see if I can buy it either at the 21 day or at the 50 day. And you can't, don't try to nail it right on, allow wiggle room on either side of these moving averages. Because as you'll see in these charts that I'm gonna pull up, um, they will undercut the 21 and then hold the 50, or they'll undercut the 50 and they'll hold the 200, right? So again, that's another reason why I like to stair step into stocks, especially if they've been big movers, right? Big move, maybe I'm taking 1% of my 3% position that I like to do for starter positions, taking 1% when it pulls back to the 21, 1% when it pulls back to the 50, 1% when it pulls back to the 200, and then I'm full, and then I'll put my risk control underneath the 200. Or conversely, if it holds the 21 and rallies, I'll either add as it's starting to rally or as it rallies off that 21 and pulls back, has another down day, I'll add at that point. So I'll just continue to watch for those down 5% days as it's moving its way up and up and up that chart. And you can see on this by looking at Digital Turbine, how you know you, you held the 21 day here, but then failed, but held above the 50, recovered the 21, rallied, stayed above the 21, all the way up from 20, you know, from probably 30 to 42, retreated all the way, undercut slightly the 50 day, rallied back to, that was like 25, great entry, back to 43, back to the 21 day, back to 50, held the 21 day ever since, a slight undercuts a couple times from 60 to 80. So that kind of gives you, that's one example uh, of that. Another example would be stock we talked about last week, ServiceNow. ServiceNow is um, another stock that's been, again, same thing. You break out, bust out to the new high, break out at, from 390 to 450, but it was probably on earnings. Digest back to the 21 day, <clears throat> undercut slightly, rally. Undercut, hold the 50 day, rally. Undercut, undercut slightly the 50, rally. Undercut slightly the 50, rally. Undercut slightly the 50, rally. So you can see where, where you can, if you're not sure where to enter a story stock, this makes it very systematic for you. It takes a lot of the guesswork out because you can say to yourself, I'm just going to look at these levels that stocks tend to find support at, and I'm going to take advantage of those and buy at those levels. Another stock that's a good example, that is 2.6 Incorporated, which we talked about a few months ago as well, IIVI. Um, they make lasers and stuff that's useful in helping to automate stuff like autonomous driving and everything else. So IIVI is the symbol there. And you can see how once this stock held its 200 day, right? Rallied above the 50 day, pulled back to the 21 day, jump, escalate, escalate, retest 21, hold, hold. This is actually beautiful because it's holding above the 21 each time. There's just so much pent up demand to buy this stock. Every time it pulls back, people are coming in and buying it. Um, and again, held again on the most recent move. And now the stock has gone from last November, 60, 50 bucks to almost a hundred. So those are a few examples of how I approach when, a research, when our research kicks out a name, I'll then come up with my catalyst. What, what, you know, I'll do my due diligence. I'll figure out what my, what my catalysts are, what my thesis is. Then I'll say, okay, is, do I want to buy it at the market right now? If it's near one of these key touch points, yes. If it's not, I add it to my watch list. 
And if we get down 5% day, or we hit one of these touch points, roughly, then I'll go ahead and I'll take my, I'll take my swing. Does that, does that make sense, Jeff? Oh yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Definitely, um, it's, it's great to, it's great to see the other end of that. I have one follow-up question for you. So this just kind of popped into my head when you started talking about, um, you didn't explicitly mention, you know, stop losses, but I assume that's, that's what you have on most, if not all of your, of the stocks in your portfolio. Is that accurate? I have a long and storied history uh, with stop losses. <laughs> many people probably do. Um, you know, a lot of the really talented people who've been around a long time, if you follow them on Twitter, if they've been, look for people who've been investing more than 20 years. And you'll like, see- them. Like Todd, like Todd. <laughs> <laughs> like I have, I have the scars to prove it. Um, yep. you'll, you'll find that some of them either swear by stop losses or some people have been burned by stop losses enough times where they get worried about actually putting them on the books. So when you put in a stop loss, you're trying to control your risk. You're picking a particular number that you'll sell at. So maybe you're saying you're like an O'Neill said 8%. Some people will say a different number. Some people will use a trailing stop. Some people will put it right under the 200 day moving average. Um, our research model starts to really penalize companies when they get more than 5% below the 200 day moving average. That's when we really start on the price volume part. We have seven factors. That's one of the factors. When it gets more than 5% below the 200 day moving average, that's where we really start to penalize a score in our ranking. So, you know, you could theoretically follow with a stop loss 5% or more below the 200 day and be like, once it breaks below that point, I just have no interest in, in it. I'll focus on other ideas. I do not have physical stop losses. Now, some people say that's dumb because it, mental stop losses uh, allow you, put you at risk of emotional decision-making. Yep. Right. We've talked about that a lot in past episodes where we talk yes. about mindset and the importance of mindset and rules and systematically sticking to your rules and not justifying or rewriting history, right? We don't want to rewrite our thesis because we're losing money, right? We have to want to win more than being right, right? So if I feel like I can do that and I'm not perfect, but I feel, since I feel like I can do that, I feel like I'm okay having mental stop losses. If you don't feel like you can do that, then you're better off actually trailing with a physical stop on the books. It's just that what I've found sometimes is that um, the, if it's a kind of a dull day or whatever, you, they'll come down to your stop loss, trigger you out, and then rally the stock again, and then you're out of the stock. And did you really want to get stopped out of Amazon? Probably not. So I, that's why I have you know, when I teach the course, how to talk stocks, I have everybody write out their thesis. We do all of our due diligence. And the game plan is that when your thesis breaks is when you should be selling, right? Because yep. if you believe in e-commerce and you believe that e-commerce is going to continue to win market share against physical retail, then why would you want to get banged out of Etsy, Shopify, or Amazon solely because it hits some arbitrary number that you picked out of a hat, right? So I think that you need to balance those things. And that's not an easy thing to do, and I understand that. Uh, but conceptually, that would be my advice to investors, is to try and find that balance between the story and your willingness 
to in in your need to be right, right? Uh, because you don't want you don't want to sit in the stuff. If you're wrong, you're wrong. So we had a great show uh, beginning of January. I think it was the sell um, our sell. How do we sell? And that was one of my resolutions, right? I want to get better at figuring out my sell rules, right? And I really don't, I really don't want a bigger than 10% loss on a stock because theoretically, once I've built my full position, if I'm right, I should be proven right by the market pretty quickly, right? If I'm down 10% after buying my third tranche, say, right, then I should probably just sell it and walk away. 